I'm going to be reading out of Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is what it says. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider. He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom, dismayed, trembling, seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hands, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. You can all grab a seat, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this time as we get to gather and to worship you and to praise you and exalt you. Lord, you are so glorious and so mighty. I love that question, who is the Lord? And I pray that God, that question would be uh, just permeating our hearts and our minds right now. And we'd be processing that, and that that question could lead us into worship of you, Yahweh. I just pray for my brother Joshua as he gets to get up here and um, preach your word. I thank you so much for his willingness to partner with us, uh, Sister Church here at Taproot Church, and just so thankful that uh, we get to see your your church, your kingdom, a little bit larger this morning, and that it's, it's broader than just Taproot, and it's just broader than just this city. But Lord, you're doing so much all over this world, and there's pockets of kingdom worshipers, king worshipers, Yahweh worshipers all over this planet this morning, this day, worshiping you. I just thank you for that grand picture of your kingdom. These mountains that you have created, that you have established, that this is your your creation and that we get to be part of it, Lord. We thank you so much. We worship you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have a guest preacher this morning. So uh, Joshua Reichert, if you want to come up here, my friends. Anyways, Joshua, he's, uh, he's kind of like the me over at TFCC. It's mm-hmm. like we're, we're, we do like a lot of the same stuff. Well, like yeah. we 
We try to do all the kind of behind scenes work. We get up and preach every once in a while. We try to keep all the like volunteer stuff happening and all the communications happening. It's like, that's kind of some of what we do. Um, So yeah, so we we have the hardest job you could ever imagine. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Listen up here. We have the opportunity. Aaron and Mike are not here. We can just say whatever we want. We're better than that. Uh, no, so, so uh, Joshua uh, graciously agreed to come out and preach for us this morning, and so it's really cool to see us be able to team up and just be sister churches, uh, praising God together. Yeah. So all I want to do, I just want to put my hand on you and pray yeah. for you, my brother, and then we're just going to get into it. Father, thank you so much for my brother here. I thank you that he could come out. Thank you for his family, uh, his wife, his two girls, and just pray that you just bless them, Lord. Just so thankful that uh, they're willing to come out here and um, preach uh, your word. Pray for your spirit to be over Joshua. Pray that uh, as he gets up this morning, that any nerves or anything, just all that would maybe get out of the way and that you just would help him to just know that you are king and you've got this and your spirit's going uh, to interpret accordingly <laughs> across the board uh, through your word, through his mouth, through the air, and that uh, it's going to all be good because it's going to magnify you much, Lord. Mm. I just pray that uh, we can come back to the reality of what this means in light of who we are as Christians, as Christ followers. And that Jesus would be proclaimed this morning as good. We love you, Father. Thank you for my brother here. Be with him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Thanks, Will, for introducing me. Uh, the reason I look like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is because I forgot to put sunscreen on when I went skiing yesterday. So if that's a distraction, can't do anything about it. So sorry. It's good to be here. Like Will just said, one of the pastors of Twin Falls Community Church. Uh, I think I've taught one other, two other times here before, so thank you guys for letting me come up here again and appreciate you all just welcoming me here. It's been good just to talk to a few of you, get to know you, and even pray this morning, so thankful for that. Um, If you haven't already, you can turn to Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21, and while you do that, I'll pray. Lord, it is good to worship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you will allow your word to be clearly communicated by me, that I will hide behind the text and Christ will be known. I pray that your scripture will give us strength to lean on you, and to worship you today, tomorrow, and throughout the rest of our lives. You are such a good, strong, mighty God. I cannot wait to continue to praise you today and forevermore. And in Christ's name I pray, amen. A friend of mine once wrote, does any body of literature compare to the Psalms. The Greeks have Homer, the Romans, Virgil, the Italians, Dante, the British, Shakespeare. But nothing compares to the Psalms. The Psalms in the Bible are the source of the most beautifully crafted literature ever recorded because they're all about God. Here in Exodus 15, we have one of the first major songs or psalms ever recorded in the Bible. And like the book of the Psalms, this one's focus is not on the one singing it, but on the one, Yahweh. So for that reason, before we dig into the text, I thought it may be helpful to ask the question, Why do the psalms or singing play such a fundamental role in the life of the church and in the life of Christians? So it's because singing captures three fundamental truths about us, about Christians. The first thing that singing communicates is it unites us. One cannot sing as a group alone. The only way a chorus can sing together is if they come together and then agree to sing whatever's in their book or whatever is on the screen. So quite simply, singing unites us. The second thing, singing declares what we believe. 
So singing unites us, and then singing declares what we believe. If you ever want to know what a church or a group of people believe, listen closely to their music. For what one praises is what one loves. And lastly, singing expresses our true joys and hopes. C.S. Lewis once wrote, We praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. We oftentimes look to one another and say, Look at this. Isn't that great? Isn't this awesome? Come join me in this. This is so cool. We do this because it's our nature to praise what we love. We do this with with nature. We do this with our loved ones. We sing praises and we praise whatever we love. And so as we go through this uh, psalm, be reminded that what you praise, what Israel is praising, is what they love. All of us have a longing to sing. All of us at some point have a desire to lift our voices up and shout. Whether, like my wife, to a catchy Taylor Swift song, or like me when I'm you know, working out, which I don't do that much, to like a fight song, like Eminem. Or like we do appropriately on Sunday mornings, to our King Jesus. The reason we do this The reason we desire to sing is that we were made to worship. And what we sing to, what we praise, again, reveals what we love. So today in Exodus 15, we're going to see a beautiful song sung by God's people in response to his redemption. And in their song, we will see and learn who deserves our praise and how we should respond when Yahweh does great and mighty deeds in our lives. So I think we have a slide on the main point. So whoever's doing that, there you go, sweet. Uh, So in Exodus 15, we will see that the climax of this song is verse 11 with that deep question, who is like you, O Yahweh? The answer, none. Therefore, Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of praise. So the main point of this psalm is Yahweh alone is worthy of praise. I'm going to pause for a second. I've said the word Yahweh or the name Yahweh a lot, just so we're all on the same page. If you open your Bibles and you look at you know, verse 1 or even throughout the whole psalm, in verse 1, the Lord is capitalized. You'll notice that a lot in the Old Testament. The reason Lord is capitalized is because that's actually the divine name, Yahweh. So I've just created a habit. Whenever I see Lord capitalized, I just say Yahweh. So as I read it and as I talk about it, Yahweh is the, word, the name I'm going to be using, not Lord. So it's not wrong that it's in there. That's just how they've translated that divine name. So before we approach this passage... You guys haven't been walking through Exodus with me, so let me kind of get you slightly familiar with the book of Exodus. So there's this kind of constant drumbeat through chapter 1 all the way to chapter 14, and that drumbeat is Pharaoh, not Yahweh, Pharaoh trying to kill Israel, and then Egypt ruling over Israel. That's the drumbeat. Pharaoh does this, tries to kill Israel, he fails, Yahweh redeems them over and over and over again. And in every chapter leading up to chapter 15, Pharaoh has maliciously sought the lives of Israel. And in every chapter, we've seen Yahweh redeem them, whether it's through the plagues, whether it's through Moses in the the water, um, whether it's through a variety of other things. Pharaoh doesn't like Israel. Yahweh loves Israel, and he protects them. He protects his people, and he's doing all of this for a purpose. And his main purpose throughout all the book of Exodus is that he will receive ultimate glory and that his people will be able to dwell with him. The main point of Exodus is Yahweh making a way for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God. So in chapter 14, after 400 years of slavery, we have this victory at last. Israel was rescued out of death and into life. And in chapter 15 is Israel's response to what God has done for them. And in their response, we'll see Israel praise Yahweh for who he is in verses 1 and 2 and verses 20 through 21. 
We'll see Israel declare Yahweh is the main, uh, is the man of war and is a ruler in verses three through four and in verses 18 through 19. And we'll also see Israel praising Yahweh's past and future deeds. That's verses 10 through, 5 through 10 and 13 through 17. And then the climax is verses 11 and 12, where we'll see none is like Yahweh. If you could go to the next slide. This is, oh, it looks good on your screen. Great. Okay. So Moses, the author, has a, it's kind of small, but if you have glasses, you can look at it. Moses, the author, has arranged this passage in a chiastic structure or a ring-like manner. All that means is that the beginning verses and the end verses parallel one another, and then the next verses, so 3 through 4, 18 through 19, parallel one another, 5 through 10, 13 through 17, parallel one another, and then this psalm all climaxes in verses 11 and 12. So the way you should be reading it is actually skipping one. You read one through two, and then you skip down to 21, 20 and 21, and so on and so forth. And it's actually supposed to help you memorize and remember the song better. If you're familiar with the Psalms, this is actually a constant structure that the Psalms have. And any book that Moses writes, oftentimes he has this structure in different chapters. So the way I'm going to handle this passage is we're going to read verses 1 through 2, talk about those. We're going to skip all the way down to 20 through 21, read those, talk about those. And you'll see, hopefully, if I do a good job, you'll see this pattern, and you'll see that everything that's happening here is pointing to 11 and 12. So let's read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll read verses 20 and 21 as I read Hopefully you'll see the patterns. Verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Skip down to 20 and 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's literally a quote of verse 1, word for word. So in verses 1 and 2, Moses and Israel declare the glorious reality of what God has done for them. Verse 1 says, I will sing to Yahweh. Or you could change the word will to, I must sing to Yahweh. The most natural response to God doing great things among, among his people is for them to lift their voices up in praise of him through song. What has he done to cause their voices to sing? Look at verse 1. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. They recognize what happened at the Red Sea was not some naturalistic encounter, but was Yahweh personally guiding his people through the water. The phrase triumphed gloriously can be translated as he surged Oh, surged. The verb used here has two meanings one to triumph and one for the rising of the sea. So, when you kind of put those together, it gives this concrete image of what Yahweh did. He caused the sea to rise, to crush his enemies, and then he triumphed gloriously. So, in response to Yahweh's action, Israel shouts in verse 2 Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Israel sees what Yahweh has done and, has pla and places all salvation and all hope on him. It was not the sea that saved them. It was not the night that hid them. And it was not their wit that redeemed them. It was Yahweh alone, and thus he alone is worthy of praise. They also recognize 
This God is the same God that their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have worshipped. And that's why they say, my father's God, in verse 2. But if you note the beginning of verse 2, they say, Yahweh is my strength and my song. Another way of translating this is, Yahweh is my psalm. So my strength and my psalm. This word is different in the Hebrew than the words we saw in verses 1, verse 1, where it says, saying, says Israel sang this song. Those are different words than this word for sung in verse 2. And what's being communicated here is not outward singing. This word in verse 2 is communicating Yahweh is their psalm, meaning he is the content of what they are singing. He is the reason they are singing, and he is what they are singing about. So we had Psalm 118, 118, you know, verses 7 through 17 read, but actually the psalmist David quotes in verse 14 this exact phrase, Yahweh is my strength and my song. And Isaiah the prophet in chapter 12, verse 2, quotes this as well. To help us sing our, to see our singing and our praises and our worship should be solely directed to Yahweh. He is, he is Israel's source of salvation, and he is their, the reason for their praise. So if you look down at the parallel verses, 20 and 21, what do Miriam and the women with her sing? They sing the psalm. In verse 21, it says, word for word, what we saw in verse 1, except rather than saying, I will sing, it's a command. Sing, all of Israel, sing with us. It seems as if Moses and the men of Israel sing a line, and then Miriam and the women repeat it back. It's almost like a call and response. Or it could be reversed because verse 2 says Miriam, the prophetess, took the tambourine, which here, better translation would be a small drum, and went out with the women. Thus, what Moses might be communicating is Miriam is the one leading in the praise and leading in this triumphant song, which is all the more glorious when seen in light of Miriam's role in Moses' life. Who caused Moses to be found among the reeds? Miriam. Who watched him in the turbulent waters? Miriam. Who ran to the daughter of Pharaoh and said, I know who can nurse him? Miriam. Miriam has been a part, his sister has been a part of his life. And now it looks like she's either written this psalm or is at least leading in this psalm alongside of her brother and fellow Israelites. So what we have here, I think, is a wonderful picture of men and women acting in their complementary roles. God inspired Miriam to communicate through song truths about him. Thus, the reason she may be called a prophetess is that she's probably communicating truth about Yahweh. And then this psalm is kind of created and under the guidance of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses most likely wrote it down. So again, I'm kind of in belaboring this kind of odd point, but I want us to see that all of us, men, women, children, all can flourish in the worship of the Lord. We all should be participating in the worship. This isn't just men worshiping. This isn't just women worshiping. Men and women should complement one another as we worship the Lord. And we can see this even all the way back in Israel's time, as they are becoming a nation. So looking at these two couplet of verses, a few applications can be drawn. First, we see in verses 1 and 2 that what you love is what you worship. Or to put it the other way, what you worship is what you love. This can serve as a warning and also as a guide as we listen to music throughout the week. What are you listening to? What are you singing do the songs that you sing bring glory and honor to God? If not, I'd caution you to be careful at what music you let influence you. That's not to say all music that doesn't lift praise to the Lord is wicked and wrong and bad. But it is to say, if you worship sexual immorality, eventually you're going to become an idolater. If you worship lying, eventually you're going to become a liar. And scripture shows over and over and over again, 
What you worship is what you become. Psalm 115 is all about this. Israel is worshiping false idols, and the Lord calls them what they worship. If you've noticed, Israel, after they worship the red, or the red, the golden calf, how does Yahweh refer to them when they're sinning? He calls them stubborn oxes. And then when they worship other images, he calls them those images as well. So this is a reminder you're made to worship, but you're actually only made to worship one thing, and that's Yahweh alone, nothing else. <laughs> and that's why the Lord calls us to worship him. The more we worship him, the more we become like Christ. Another point of application in this text is to sing and to sing loudly. Let me just point out a few places throughout Scripture where people rejoice in our Lord. Judges 5 Deborah and Barak sing in a joyful response when they defeat Jabin and Caesarea. In 2 Samuel 22, David sings to God when he delivers him from his enemies. Psalm 40, David praises Yahweh for lifting him out of the pits of despair. And then Isaiah 51.11 says, The ransom of Yahweh will return, that's all you and I, they will enter Zion with singing. And then who else sings in the New Testament? Mary sings in rejoicing when she meets with Elizabeth and they both are bearing a child. And then we also see in Job 38, Job is kind of quoting what happened in creation and he said the angels sung creation in response to creation. God's people naturally should respond in praise to him. When they see what God has done, they should be singing. Someone once said, music is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart response to God and his truth in meaningful, memorable ways. It is the case of our hearts to join with our minds to say yes, yes, and yes to the truths that we embrace. This is why we sing each and every Sunday. It is the only right response to God's salvation given to us day in and day out. The last point of application in this section is an encouragement to learn how to worship. Learning how to worship means we understand God's salvation. Israel, in a way, has given us a mold to follow. They see God act in salvation, which means they then respond by worshiping him in song. In the New Testament, we're called to be a living sacrifice, which means to be someone who is a living worshiper of God. So the only way you can actively live life in worship is by knowing God and knowing his word. Because worship is our response to his revelation of himself. Thus, if you are beholding God, your only response can be worship. Meaning, if you're not beholding God, then you're living in light of your self and your own image, and you're exchanging the glory of God for the image crafted in your likeness. So again, what are you beholding? What do you worship day in and day out? Oftentimes, it's our comfort, it's ourselves, it's our spouses, our kids. A lot of the things we worship are actually really good things, but they take the place of the true King, Jesus so the next section we have is our divine warrior and our ultimate ruler, verses 3 through 4 and 18 through 19. Let me read those. 3 through 4. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. Skip down to 18 and 19. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. For when the, horse of Pharaoh, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. This next couplet of verses in 3 through 4, 18 through 19, they help us see that Yahweh is our divine warrior and our ultimate forever ruler. Uh, Verse 3 says, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. What the people of Israel are stating here is that their mighty man 
Their warrior who they send out before them is Yahweh. They're not like the armies who have gone before them who send out their mightiest man. You can think of the Philistines. Who do they send out? They send out Goliath as their champion. Israel sends out Yahweh. And they have a true and mighty God who will conquer for them. The one who is, the one who will be, and the one who will come. The Alpha and the Omega. Look down at verse 18, which furthers furthers this thought. That the man of war who goes before Israel, Yahweh, will also reign forever and ever. He's not a fickle God, but one who created the world. One who, in verse 4, casts Pharaoh's chariots and his host and his choice men into the sea. To further this point of Yahweh being the true divine warrior king, the phrase, his chosen officers, communicates the youngest and the brightest of men. The strongest men of Egypt were on these chariots. And the word host can also mean third one, which sounds really weird, but it communicates that on these chariots, there were three men, one holding the rein, one holding the bow or the spear, and one directing, hey, kill that guy. Don't hit that rock. Steer this way. Hey, kill that dude. So it's like three men on a chariot, okay? These are like the biggest baddest. This is like a tank back in the day. So they're charging with all of their might. And what does Israel do? They tremble a little bit, but they know their mighty warrior, their ruler, is going to stand for them. And how does Yahweh respond? Respond? He brings back the water on them. And Israel walks on dry land. How great is our God? How awesome is he that Egypt, the biggest military army in the world, gets consumed, not by an army, not by the best and brightest men of Israel, but by Yahweh through the sea. So we see Yahweh is able to defeat his enemies, and he's able to protect his people. And as a result of his victory, they cannot help but sing and rejoice. Thus, what we see here is not merely a God who can overcome Egypt, but a divine warrior who will reign forever and ever. And that phrase is key because it proves that what God has done in the past, he's going to do over and over again with his people. Church, the question for you is, will you submit yourself to God and to Yahweh? Or will you, or will you live under your own rule and your own desires? Because if you do that, you will be like Egypt. You will be consumed by the sea. But if you submit yourself to the Lord and to his word and worship him day in and day out, you know what he's going to do? Yahweh's going to fight for you. And you know how he's fought for you? He pierced, he killed his only son for you, Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate thing that God has done for us and for his glory. He has purchased you through his son's blood. Turn your eyes to Jesus and worship the Lord. Worship Yahweh, our mighty king, our mighty warrior who fights for you. No one, not even the devil, can snatch you out of God's hands because of what Christ has done on the cross. So now if we look back at verses 5 through 10 and 13 through 17, we're going to get a little closer to the heart of this passage and we're going to see 5 through 10 point backwards and we're going to see 13 through 17 point forward. So look at 5 through 10. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Skip down to 13 through 17. 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they, trem- they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Yahweh, pass by, to the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So both of these couplets are, are, are emphasizing what Yahweh has done and what Yahweh will do. So verses 5 through 10 is actually another bracket where verse 5 mentions the floods cover Egypt and they sink like stone. And if you skip down to 10, it says the sea covered them and they sank like lead. Here we have wording that is reflective of creation in Genesis 1-2 and in the flood in Genesis 6. Israel is saying, like the waters have covered the earth before creation, like the floods covered all the wicked, so this sea has covered the Egyptians. Their fate is the same as those who have gone before them. Judgment. In verse 6, we see a phrase that is used in Psalm 118, again, and in Psalm or Isaiah 12, where the people who have yet to come will use language of the past to celebrate current salvation and future redemption. The psalmist in Psalm 118 uses the phrase in verse 2, Yahweh is my strength and my psalm, and he, he has become my salvation. He also uses your right hand language throughout his psalm, showing that this psalm is one that's used to bring about hope and rejoicing, even in the future. Israel uses this language right hand and power because Yahweh said it back in chapter 3, verse 20. Of Exodus. So what I'm trying to get us to see here in quoting Psalm and Isaiah is that the pattern that Moses sets in this Psalm is seen over and over again throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, and even throughout the historical literature in the Bible. This is a pattern setting. You could say, I don't like using this word, it's a trend that the rest of the Bible uses. Verse 7 then goes on to say, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. In the greatness of your majesty. What is majestic in your eyes? Is it the mountains covered in snow? Is it the way the water flows in a calm stream? Is it the bird that flies in the sky. Whatever is majestic, if it's not Yahweh in your eyes, pales in comparison to Yahweh. Because Yahweh, in his majesty, throws down those who rose up against him and consumes them like fire. Yahweh's wrath is majestic. Why? Because his wrath is his perfect justice Handed out to those who rebel. His wrath is placed on those who in Psalm 1 are not planted by streams of water, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. He dispenses his wrath on Egypt by by blowing with his nostrils. That's what happens to Israel, or sorry, Egypt, and they die. That's how powerful our God is. That's how awesome our God is. And yet in the midst of his wrath, his wrath is actually a means for salvation for Israel. Verse 8 states, The wind from his nose piled up the waters, it placed it in a heap, and it congealed. The language Moses is using here should cause you to imagine the waters turning into this stone wall. For Israel, this Chaotic, slippery water without form turned into a wall with form, creating a path for them to walk. But that same wind does something to Egypt. It consumes them. And just so we're all on the same page, the word for wind is the exact same word for spirit. 
meaning the Holy Spirit. Thus, God receives glory through the salvation of some and the judgment of others. So verse 9 is what many of us actually say to ourselves daily. We say, I'm going to pursue. I'm going to overtake. I'm going to divide the spoil. My desire is going to have its full today. And I'm going to draw my sword. And my hand shall destroy. How many times have you said, not those exact words, hopefully, but have said things similar to that? I am going to eat that soda, drink that soda from McDonald's today because I deserve it. You know what? I'm going to come home a little later today because I deserve some rest from my kids and my family. Or, you know what? I can yell at my kids today. I deserve to be a little angry today because they've been really frustrating to me. You know what Yahweh does to that? Verse 10. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. All their boasting... All their self-glory, all their inward focus ends in a moment, ends in a breath. Yahweh is seen as basically saying, all I have to do is breathe and you will become undone. Let this psalm be a lesson. You can do nothing. All your boasting, all your self-indulgences, all your desires to have your way is stubble that will be consumed like fire by Yahweh's fury. Boast not in your gifts. Boast not in your talents. Boast not in yourself. Boast only in King Jesus, in God. So this section mirrors 13 through 17. But in 13 through 17, Israel isn't looking to the past. They're looking to the future. And in verse 13, it says, Yahweh has led in his steadfast love the people who redeemed, that he redeemed, and he has guided them by his strength into his holy abode. Look at verse 17. It says, Yahweh will plant them in his own mountain, his abode, the sanctuary that Yahweh has made. Thus, these two verses pull our mind all the way back to the Garden of Eden with that word plant, which is used in Genesis 8, uh, 2.8. 8 but also point us forward to the tabernacle and the temple and even farther forward to Mount Zion and the new heavens and new earth. Israel is declaring before God and one another that Yahweh will not only deliver them from the Egyptians, but will deliver them into his holy dwelling where they can see Yahweh face to face. And Yahweh does this through his steadfast chesed, covenantal Love. Thus, Israel bases their future off of Yahweh's covenantal love that he made in the past. Meaning they know that God has promised something to them, land, seed, and blessing, and he's going to give it to them. And they understand that the land is not just some cool land on this earth, but it's the new heavens and new earth. It's a new Edenic-like land. And in Ezekiel 28, we see this being further uh, pointed to when Ezekiel refers to Eden as being on a mountain. Thus, for Israel to say Yahweh is going to place his people on this mountain where he dwells, they're saying, we trust that one day we will dwell with Yahweh face to face. We will be with him like Adam and Eve, but this time we'll be in his holy abode, which is all the more glorious than it was before. So in verses 14 through 16, uh, this, this kind of continues this idea of this predictive type of verses. So you have the new heavens and new earth. It's futuristic. And then you kind of have these, these nations being mentioned. Israel hasn't faced these nations. They haven't faced Philistia or Edom or Moab or Canaan. I mean, they literally just got out of Egypt. So how can they say that these guys are going to tremble? Well, they're thinking and prophesying of the future. They're basically predicting the book of Joshua, the conquest. So in verse 16, the phrase pass by is used twice, and that's a quote, or it's the same word used in the Passover meal. It's the same word used when Yahweh passes over the firstborn. But 
it's also the same word used in the book of Joshua 57 times when Israel passes by the nations and destroys them. So this is, just, this is Moses pointing forward, and then when Moses and or Joshua write the book of Joshua, they're pointing back to this account and saying, this is the fulfillment of that, of that song. So this shows us that the conquest of Joshua is actually Yahweh preserving his people like he did in Egypt while conquering those who are, rebel, who are rebelling against the Lord. So how awesome is our God to enable his people to worship him and know him and know his path, the way he acts in the past is how he's going to act in the future. So we don't worship a God who's a mystery. We don't worship a God who acts secretively. No, we worship Yahweh who has made himself known to us and has shown us who he is through Jesus. So we don't have a question mark when it comes to our end. No, we should sing like Israel and rejoice because we know we don't have an end, but we have eternal life and eternal glory with Yahweh, with Jesus, and with the Holy Spirit. Well, we will sing over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. How glorious will it be? No fear, no pain, no suffering. Our joy is knowing that we are redeemed and we have a place with Yahweh. Now we turn to the climactic point of this psalm, verses 11 and 12. Look at 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Yahweh among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. This is where their voices rise to a crescendo, and they sing, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The question begs an answer. Who is like Yahweh? Is it Goliath? Is it Pharaoh? Is it those crazy beasts in Daniel and Revelation? Who is like Yahweh? The answer is none. Who deserves our praise? Only Yahweh. Who is worthy of our glory? Only Yahweh. Who delivered Israel out of Egypt? Yahweh. Who came as our Savior? Yahweh incarnate, Jesus Christ. This psalm over and over and over again is saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Praise him. What is the resounding beat in your worship and in your life? Notice the structure in this passage. Verses 1 and 2, the singers, Moses and Israel, they use words like, I must sing, and Yahweh is my strength and my psalm. They spend very little time talking about their own faith and their own actions but he immediately turned their focus on Yahweh. Their song has one sub- subject, God. The implication and application for us as New Testament believers is twofold. What do we sing about in our worship on Sunday mornings? And secondly, who do we live for from Sunday to Sunday? So I, I ask you, and I've asked our church this, pay attention to the songs that we sing. Each and every Sunday, ask yourself, Am I the main subject of this song? Because if I am, then we shouldn't be singing this song. If the pattern, either on my own or at church, is I will do this, I am here, I do this, my faith is this, me, 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 then you're singing about yourself. You're not the subject of the song. Israel's not the subject of their song. You and I am not the subject of the Bible, but God and God alone is. And his glory is the main subject of all history. You just get to experience his glory and his salvation. So ask yourself, am I worshiping the Lord on Sunday mornings or am I worshiping myself on Sunday mornings? And then... Reflect 
What type of Christian music do I listen to? Does it point me upward or inward? Does it make me happy about my gifts and goals in life? Or does it make me joyful of what Christ has done on the cross? There's a lot of bad Christian music out there. And there's a lot of bad secular music out there. Ask yourself, what do I like to listen to? What do I like to sing? And if it's all about you, repent, study scripture, and ask the Lord to point your eyes, not inward, but outward. So the psalm of the sea is a beautiful psalm that reveals Yahweh is the only one worthy of praise as it reflects on the past to cast our minds forward to his never-ending covenantal love of Yahweh shepherding his flock. So to this end, that all the redeemed may dwell at the mountain of God at Mount Zion. We should all be singing with the psalmist in Psalm 84, 1 through 4. How lovely is your dwelling, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longs, even faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh cry out with joy to the living God. How happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Turn your eyes to Jesus, church. Turn your singing to Jesus so that your life and your love is Jesus alone. Good things can become idols. Oftentimes, those are the things we praise the most. Turn away from your idols and cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it is so good to be able to read your word and to see how you redeemed Israel and how you caused them to look to you above all things. I pray that we, as a church, whether Taproot or Twin Falls Community Church, that we will sing songs that praise you, that we will preach from the Bible, and that we will point you out of Scripture so that we can know you better and know our proper, right, and good response to what you have done through your son. And in Christ's name I pray, amen.